1: Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm your host, Jason Stein. Corky Coker has a huge personality within the automotive space. From a local tire shop, Coker Tire grew under Harold Coker and his son into the leading provider of new tires of classic cars. But he's so much more than the owner of the Coker Museum or Honest Charlie's, which he built into the most successful antique tire distribution and manufacturing firm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And he's also more than just Coker Tires Antique Division, which he grew from 5% of the business to 95% when he eventually retired. But after selling the company to Irving Place Capital in 2018, Corky continues to be a must-talk-to, must-sit-with personality along the automotive road of life. Frankly, he's just impossible to miss. He's known for his storytelling, business success, and knowledge of cars, tires, racers, and all things auto. And he's known for stirring up opinions on electric vehicles, autonomous cars car shows, tires, and antiques. He entered the industry working for the family business. Now a member of the SEMA Hall of Fame, he's one of the most recognized faces in the industry with his signature mustache and personality to match. So how does a kid who wanted to be a veterinarian come to create the largest and most successful producer of vintage tires in the world? How does the relative of a former U.S. senator go on to be even more famous than the congressman? And what is Corky Coker doing today and in the future? He is a fascinating, entertaining walk through automotive history, complete with a twist down memory lane and then some. Funny, charismatic, quick in front of a microphone, and memorable. All of it today on Cars and Culture.
2: Hi, folks. I'm Corky Coker, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. It's
1: interesting when you think about Corky. You've been described as a world-class storyteller with a sweet Southern drawl and you could charm a nun out of her habit.
2: <laughs> I don't know if I like that uh, analogy. I don't know that I'd want a nun out of her habit, maybe uh, <laughs> like being in prayer or something like that, if that's her habit. But um, thank you for that. I I, um, I enjoy people, I can tell you, Jason. And, you know, car people are the best people in the world. And, you know, I have been raised around them, actually, you know, I, I guess my father said, "Well, son, you were a little bit tough in your early days, so uh, I don't think you were raised up. I think you were jerked up." But uh, <laughs> you know, I, I love telling t- telling stories, and you know, I, I love um, uh, uh, cars, and I love everything about automotive industry and and the uh, car collector car hobby. So uh, it's really pretty easy for me.
1: How would you describe yourself within the car enthusiast community?
2: Well, I'm a dumb old country boy from Chattanooga, Tennessee, now live in Wildwood, Georgia, but um, who is a grandfather, a repenter, a farmer, and uh, I know a little bit about electric car tires. I've done it for about 45 years, um, but uh, I love wrenching on cars. I love driving fast on country roads and Southern, um, in the Southern States. And, um, you know, I love drifting my 1911 Mercer race about around the race course at the Chattanooga motor car festival hmm. or Laguna Seca or at Indy speedway. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I've had a wonderful life. I've been blessed, uh, and mostly blessed by meeting folks like you, Jason, talking to the, your wonderful friends who are your listeners on this podcast Um, and, uh, I guess that's a, that's a pretty deep, uh, or a decent description of who Corky Coker is.
1: Your family has such a rich history with cars and you said the lore about your own grandfather, Pop Coker, was that he (laughs) could make a Model A run better just by leaning up against it.
2: (laughs) That is absolutely true. Pop Coker went his, his, he was the last of 13 brothers and sisters in his family raised in Brastown, Ball, North Carolina. And, um, he only went through the third grade, but he was just a wizard. He, he learned mechanical things. I think God gifts us with each individual little, you know, personality, personality traits or gifts. Um, I believe God gives us spiritual gifts and that, you know, to be able to make a Model A run great is a great spiritual gift, I think, because it pleases things. But, uh, Pop could ju- just to do about anything. I remember him teaching me how to hold a hammer solid, uh, how to work hard, and uh, how to plow behind a mule. Um, do you know how to plow behind a mule, Jason? I, I don't
1: think I do. How do well, you do that, Corky? Yeah,
2: well, P- Pop Coker taught me how to plow behind a mule because you had the hay, you know, you had the hains on the co- and the collar, and you had the traces over your shoulder, and a mule is taught to learn how to go right that's chi and ha means left well pop coker had um plowed this garden and he said i want you to plow a straight furrow and he said now go through this garden with this layoff plow and you know let's see if you can plow a straight furrow kind of about life son i'm going to teach you something so i went through this you know this plowed up garden tilled and, uh, ready for set laying off and got to the other side and pop said, you know, that's pretty crooked because here I am looking back behind me the whole way there. And every time I do that, the mule go, whatever way or the, uh, right or left. And, you know, I'd say G and haw to try to straighten it up and got to the other side and it wasn't too straight. So I tried it again and then I had another line that I was trying to correct to, and it was worse. So he told me at the end of the second run, he said, now I'm going to teach you something about life, son. If you keep your eyes on the end of the furrow, if you keep your eyes on your goal, you'll plow straight. That's in the Bible too, Jason. Wow. Wow.
1: He He also taught you to use your imagination, didn't he?
2: Yeah. You know, a kid needs an imagination. And you think about it today. We're training young people in schools that they need to be computer science, uh, have computer science degree. We send them to higher education and those people pour crap into their brains. Uh, that's why, or why so many young people are coming out and being leaders of big corporations and, you know, doing, you know, having crazy ideas. I won't get off on, po- on politics, but um, we need shop class again. We need, mm-hmm. The trades to come back, and we need people to use their imagination, like the turn of the century, and from 1890s to 1900s, people made things, they invented things. The whole automotive aftermarket was created in a guy's basement or in the back of his his uh, station wagon. You know, Vic Edelbrock Senior, um, you know those guys. They made stuff, and then it became an industry. And the uh, Henry Ford, he wanted, he believed that America people should have a cheap car. He created the industrial revolution with mass production. Um, we need imagination, and this country would be healed if fathers taught their sons how to work on a car. They would feel an sense of accomplishment. Um, they would love each other. There are so many father wounds because they say, here, go to school and let them teach you. And I'm working 80 hours a week doing my thing. So we need imagination in schools. We need it in our homes. And um, I think this world would be a better place. Fathers would love their sons. Their sons would love their daughters. And, you know, I'm thinking about that right now. That might be what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life is create Mm a ministry shop. I had Chip Foose here this whole last week and Chip says, Do it, Corky, I'm in. I'm in. We've got a guy that's a a welder and and builds bridges and stuff. He says, do it, Corky, I'm in. What's wrong with that? Why shouldn't we do those sort of things? We need shop class back. We need fathers to be with their sons, creating a sense of accomplishment. Um, I just love that idea. What do you think, Jason?
1: I think you're right on to something, Corky. And, you know, your father, of course, started Coker Tire. Yes, he did but how does a kid who wanted to be a veterinarian come to create the largest most successful producer of vintage tires
2: in the world my mom story. my mom has a uh, has a great gift my dad said she was always kind of a prophet she saw the way things um needed to be and she would kind of encourage me on and i have got a gift of proportion you know i can draw i I did it um i did you know portraits by pencil and stuff myself. And um I I was not a very good student. Um in fact I went to college to be a veterinarian and um, you know, made all bees in college, um banjos, beer. <laughs> and my dad said, you get your butt back home here and you start, you know, this, you start working in the Coker Tire Company. It started in 1958 and uh, at that time the vintage tire portion of our business was only about 5% and i my dad just he challenged me and gave me you know um he didn't pay me very much he said i'm going to give you a small percentage of the gross sales now he said if i have to talk to you about how much margin you're making i'm going to you know slap you around a little bit but i just um i just went at it and i had imagination and I loved um, the opportunity to interact with people at car shows. They would help me develop new products. And, you know, I would, at any one given time, we developed two to three hundred. We had two to three hundred tire sizes, tube sizes, motorcycles, trucks, antique buses, airplane tires. Uh, folks at the major manufacturers had sloughed off and said, we're not going to do this anymore because it's not enough for us to make put in our big factories. So... Um, I was just greatly blessed. Um, and you know, God blessed us. And, um, you know, we had some great employees. We had great suppliers, uh, wonderful tread designs. And, um, you know, I, I, um, some people say I'd rather be lucky than good, but, uh, you know, I think God just kind of, if you talk to him pretty regularly and you're in his word hearing what he has to say to you that he says to any of us that have that opportunity and look to him and, You know, he just says, here, do this, here, do this, here, do this. And, you know, I'm lucky. I hate the word (laughs) luck because God just said, here, go this way. And um, he blessed me.
1: Amazing. Uh, It's well known that you and your dad would look for old tire molds around the world because you wanted to replicate the old tires with some modern technology primarily. Yeah. Where did those travels take you? And maybe where where was the oddest place you or your dad found an old tire mold?
2: Yeah. Well, um, we've found molds everywhere. I bought a whole factory out down in Uruguay. but That was after I went. I saw a tire on an antique truck somewhere in Europe that had the brand name on it. But I recognized the tread design. It's an old original BF Goodrich elliptical button tread. And uh, it had the brand name on it. So I searched the brand and um, found the plant down in South America. And I had been to um, Central America, South America doing mission trips and uh, knew that a lot of that those countries, um, you had to kind of buy people off to get where you needed to do and So I I went down there and I'm a cowboy. I wear cowboy boots everywhere I went. And the amount of money that you can take overseas on airplanes, et cetera, is maxed out at about $10,000. That's legally what you can carry. Well, I strapped $10,000 on my ankle and went down to Montevideo, (laughs) your guy, thinking that I'm going to have to bribe my way. Well, I didn't. And, um, you know, I spent four days with that duct tape around my ankle worrying that I was going to get hit on the head or something with that money in there, but nobody knew about it except for me. But, um, I found the old original molds. Uh, the guy spoke, you know, Spanish and he said, no, I don't think so. No, 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 me go. No, no, no me go." We went back into the warehouse, found the mold. And I produced all the sizes for the American LaFrance France fire engines that are today. Uh, I used that same tread design to, to, to build the, tire mo- the tires for the Daimler double six. Was, that was the um, um, People's Choice uh, Award Pebble Beach in 2014. So Daimler double six were on those tires made in that mold that I found with that interesting story.
1: Amazing. Amazing story. When you think about the those molds and 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 how you really created Coker Tire, how many molds did Coker Tire have when you sold the business in 2018?
2: Well, we, um, we had about 1,700 in production. Mm-hmm. And they were in production in different plants around the world, mostly in the United States. A um, little small factory called Specialty Tires of America made most of our stuff. Um, and they are a wonderful partner uh, for Coker Tire Company. Still are. Um, And they were made in Mexico and um, made in Michelin plants in in Romania and uh, also down in South Mexico City. Um, Anyway, we had about 1,500, 1,600, 1,700 maybe in production. But additional to that, we were buying all the old original molds as Bridgestone Firestone would discontinue them, going to scrap them, get, and, you know, because I had license agreements, they had a relationship with us and, you know, Bish, uh, Michelin and BF Goodrich and Uniroyal. U- U- so I would buy those molds. So uh, those molds are still in the warehouse and uh, Coker Tire Company as exists today still have about 15, 1800 molds um, that they haven't developed. Um, they haven't been developing much right now. Uh, but, um, you know, Um, we're talking and they're asking for my help and we'll see if that goes well. And maybe, uh, we'll get them back on the straightened era, making very interesting tires for, uh, collectors all over the world. And, um, um, it's always fun. I like making things, making people happy and serving a need.
1: What did Harold Coker, your father who passed in 2014, what did he think of the modern Coker tire compared with the business that he launched in 1958 in Chattanooga operating out of 500 square feet of
2: space. Yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten that it was that space. Actually that 500 foot space. I don't know if you've ever been to a retread shop, but in a retread shop that was the uh, the grinder that grinded the old tread off was the little in black rubber dust that was the 500 square feet that I started the the modern day coker tire company and was in that where that grinder was that ground the retreads off. But my dad thought, um, he would tell me why aren't you doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? And he'd spit just a little bit because that was manly. He thought, and, um, <laughs> I love and miss my dad to this day. I love and miss my son too. I lost him a couple of years ago, but, um, uh, my dad would, he would still pound me like a kind of a whack-a-mole saying, Hey, you know, don't you do this? And i throw him the keys and say, why don't you do it a while? And, uh, but we healed with each other. And I, I'm very thankful for that, but he would tell others all the time. He said things like he grew this business to beyond my wildest expectations. Hmm. I opened up this big facility, a production facility in the city of industry. It had a 5,000 square foot, um, powder coat line. We made about a thousand wheels a day uh, for muscle cars and, uh, wire wheels and such. And we had the grand opening out there and he walked into that and he just looked around and he was going, Oh my, Oh my. Hmm. Yeah. Oh my. And uh, he, um, you know, he, he smiled and, and was just very proud of me. I've got a younger brother that was in the wheel business too. He sold out too, but he grew a, a really wonderful business Uh, In the aluminum wheel business, I didn't do aluminum wheels because I did not want to compete with my brother and um, and my sister was in education, but uh, um, we were raised right and uh, raised with a good work ethic. Um, And, uh, you know, just very blessed, raised in a good Christian home.
1: Your dad put you in charge of the antiques division years ago. right. What were you both thinking when that began? Was he trying to get you out of his hair or did he think you could really make something out of, out of that, the, the way that you did?
2: I think he was trying to keep his thumb on me (laughs) because he was worried that I was going to play banjo all the time. My grandfather, Pop Coker says, you know, Corky, I've never seen a good banjo picker that was worth a dang at anything else other than that. And that's there's a lot of truth in that because a good banjo picker is picking his banjo all the time. He ain't doing nothing else. But um, so my dad probably thought he was kind of you know keeping me in the ditches or something like that. And um so uh, but um I think once I got started, he told me I remember the first year he said, Oh son, there's you know, these swap meets that you can go to and you can stand in front of people and you have tires. But the only one you need to do is Hershey, Pennsylvania. That's the biggest one every year, and that's the only thing you need to do. And, I, you know, I just said, well, I'm going to show you. And I I got a van. I'd sleep in the van, and I'd go to um, just shows, uh, little cruise-ins and swap meets all over. And um, I think in our uh, Coker Tires heyday, in my leadership role, we were doing about 120 uh, a, a year, and uh, from the West Coast warehouse, Pennsylvania warehouse, and uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, with set multiple companies, we had about ten companies when I sold. Um, but um, those um, those are great times, and and I I really enjoyed seeing my friends come up in Portland, Oregon, and swap meet at Hershey, and you know at all the good guys events, and uh, Carlisle's, and you know Woodward Dream Cruise. All those things are just. Uh, great memories for me. And I still see my friends this weekend. Um, I'm going to Riverside, California. I'm the grand marshal at the, at the Benedict castle concourse. Um, Nicole McGuire asked me to be her next year's um, uh, grand marshal. And that was three years ago before COVID. And before she passed away of an aneurysm or something mm-hmm. happened along, along those lines. And uh, my friend, Barry McGuire, and, and Karen um, um, continued on this um, fundraiser for um, uh, Teen Challenge of Southern California. Which, so, Teresa and I are going out there. And we're going to see our car buddies this weekend, and uh, I'll get to see a bunch of celebrities. I'll get to see Wayne Carini with, with the second-best mustache in the collector car hobby. <laughs> so, a lot of my friends.
1: Hot Rodders. Yes, they can sir. have a real can-do attitude. They're problem solvers, right? They yes. might also skirt the rules to make their cars go a little faster. What is yeah. it about these folks that engages you?
2: You know, I love, um, I love Hot Rodders because they're, they're, they're the epitome of what I envision, you know, we need to do with our fathers and sons. They're can-do attitudes. Uh, they have creativity. The way they cut down a car, you know, adapt a you know a disc brake on a you know a twenty nine Ford uh, in the rear and make a brand new or cast a hub or a brake drum to cover it and you know going fast and a lot of that comes from racing just like the automotive industry uh, would race on Sunday and and uh, and sell on Monday. sell
1: on Monday, right?
2: Yeah. So, but you know the in racing. Uh, they had rules, you know, to try to keep it fair. That's kind of dumb. If you ask me, Who? <laughs> how do you have winners if you have so many rules? So hot rodders like, you know, some of the, uh, some of the guys like Smokey eunuch, et cetera, he'd go to the line where the rules were and he'd put his toe over the line and look around and see if anybody's looking at him or see if he can get by with it. Smokey one time, you know, in in racing in Daytona, he uh, he knew that if you had more fuel than the other guys, which was regulated, that was against the rules to have more fuel capacity. So he ran a fuel line through the tubular frame, and uh, that additional gallon and a half gave his car uh, another couple laps, which gave him the opportunity maybe. To last longer and um they got found out of course you know it's always the right thing to do the right thing but um you know hot rodders i like that hand do attitude maybe putting your toe across the line and just smiling and i what me i didn't do anything wrong (laughs)
1: all right (laughs) true true or false related to that corky if you ain't cheating you ain't trying
2: Yeah, that's right. On racing, anyway, you know, I love love being first. Um, You know, I do drive my collector cars. I love brass cars. I'm really into uh, early pre-1915 race cars. I've got a 1911 Top 35R Mercer Raceabout. Worth a lot of money, but I race it here at the Chattanooga Motor Car Festival, and uh, I love doing things that are – um, they're just on the edge a little bit. Uh, I think that's where life really is. And, you know, when you, when you, um, when you know Jesus, you know, sudden death, sudden glory, you know, I, if, and if you guys hear one day that, um, that Corky Coker died driving his, uh, 1911 Mercer race about, uh, on a racetrack, don't you ever believe it? Because right then, I will be in heaven and I'll be living more than I ever have been driving and drifting a 1911 Mercer race about around the first on turn number one. So, you know, I I don't like cheating. I don't like lying. A half truth is a whole lie, but in racing, all in. And by the way, second place is first loser.
1: (laughs) After the break, I'll continue my conversation with legendary automotive aftermarket guru, Corky Coker and to see my interview with him, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than a hundred interviews.
0: The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back into the program. I'm Jason Stein.
1: Now, the continuation of my conversation with legendary automotive aftermarket guru, Corky Coker. And to see my interview with Corky, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. What does your car collection look like these days, Corky? Um,
2: well, don't tell anybody. Don't tell <laughs> Teresa because Teresa doesn't know how many there are. She <laughs> thinks we got about 100 cars, but it's closer to
1: all right. and, and
2: um, About 100 motorcycles. on <laughs> would be
1: a two in front of that. <laughs> yeah. that's,
2: that's a two. About two zero zero. zeros um, here. So uh, there's muscle cars. There's uh, classics, antique trucks. I've got a couple of airplanes hanging in the museum. The uh, Coker Museum is a 501c3, so we do take donations. Um, I, you don't need them, but... Um, you know, somebody, some folks want their stuff to be enjoyed. And we have from 50 to 150 folks a day that come in here. We have events at the Coker Museum. It's right at Honest Charlie Speed Shop, which, which is the first mail-order speed shop in the country. Started in 1948. Alex Exidius did SoCal Speed Shop in 1946, but they built cars. They didn't sell parts. And the Coker Museum is here. Um, we've got... Um, Uh, British cars, uh, I've got a Barn Find 69E type Jag that's still got the dust on it. And there's the great big old paw prints from a raccoon sliding down the the windshield. Uh, We'll restore it one day. Uh, There are a lot of motorcycles, lots of of stories about motorcycles. Everything in the collection has a story, and it has to do with something that was a lot of fun in buying it and uh, restoring it. And driving it,
1: is there a car that's in the museum that means something to you, maybe more personally, or uh, may not be the most valuable or interesting to somebody else? But is there something that's really resonates for you?
2: Who told you to ask me that question? Anyway, um, yeah, there <laughs> is, Jason. Um, okay. I'm asked that all the time. Okay, I walk people in my museum, and usually it's it's surrounded by a value question. Somebody won't might think it's the most valuable, but you ask it's the most heartfelt, etc. Mm-hmm. There's a nineteen seventy six, Spirit of Seventy Six International Scout in there. And um it's one of one of 360 ish that they made at International um in, in 1976 for the, you know, bicentennial. And uh it's red, white, and blue. Um I gave that to my son Cameron. Um uh, Cameron, um, and there's a picture on the windshield of that with me and my son standing in front of the Grand Tetons. We did a motorcycle trip out there with Billy Graham's grandsons, Roy and Will Graham and Billy Graham's son, um, Franklin. And um, uh, Cameron was killed testing a car here in Chattanooga um, two years ago and uh, so I'd give in that museum. I'd give every one of those cars back out away if I was able to have Cameron back. So you might think it's about my son when I talk about that, but it's not uh, because you know my faith knows that Cameron is in heaven today, and um, I'll see him soon. So that's the most meaningful thing in my car collection is Cameron's 1976 Spirit of '76. Uh, international scout and it talks about i mean it's about my faith and it's about um, you know father and son enjoying doing stuff Um, the car he was driving was a 1960 sunbeam alpine that we had cut apart uh, the body and uh, put that body widened it and put it on a 19 No, 2016 Subaru WRX STI chassis. So Mm. it was 600 horsepower, all-wheel drive, uh, Brembo brakes, all-wheel drive, romping, stomping. Uh, It was just a wonderful car, and uh, he lost control of it. Went to heaven.
1: That's a powerful story, Corky. with the museum, do, do you get some interesting people asking to donate their interesting vehicles?
2: Yeah, I, I I do. Um, you know, I have a I have an airplane hanging in the museum that's a Mystic Lake airplane. Uh it's built in 1929. Well one day this um late 60s woman and a an early 70s man came through and says this was my dad's airplane, you know. I'm glad you have it here. So, you know, it was donated to me and um said I want to tell you a story about that. My dad built that airplane to produce them and um my mom hated the airplane. She was afraid he's going to die and um flying this airplane all over Massachusetts. So she made him sell it. So what she did then what he did then said she was an inventor and He had a great imagination. He built a, uh, speedboat and came day to test the speedboat. And this lady and this boy were in or five and seven years old or five and eight years old. And, um, so, uh, this lady's telling me this story that, um, uh He said, "Come on, honey, bring the kids down. I want to test the boat, and y'all can watch me for the shore. So they take it down to this lake in front of uh the town and had a waterfall, and so he's driving a speedboat. Well, the motor stopped, and he drifted to the dam and went over and was drowned um and it made the front page news you know inventor um you know perished and you know, they're telling me this story seven, you know, 65 years later, I start laughing. I, s- I said, well, what are you laughing? What are you laughing about that for? And I said, well, do you ever think to ask your mama when you got became an adult that if you just let him keep the airplane, he would still be living. But so, you know, so this lady's telling me that story. And she said, you know, I know about my dad that he's in heaven. He was a Presbyterian layman pastor and you know did and um you know and i i attend the same church and uh he's in heaven and she said those same words that i just repeated to you guys he's in heaven and i'll see him soon and i i filmed that on my little television show that'll be on tele on youtube uh, uh youtube television here uh in the next few months um we'll do some press releases about it but um uh, uh Lots of fun stories like that. Um, yeah,
1: agreed. Yeah. And speaking of TV, you had your own show about yeah. 10 years ago on the Travel Channel, yeah, Backroad back Gold,
2: right? Yeah. Yeah. We were going to call it Barn Finds, but somebody owned that name. And, you know, we found we found um, cars all over the back roads of Tennessee. And, you know, I found a um, a 1948 Brill bus that I rode on as a kid, convertible bus that rode around the streets of Chattanooga. It was a called the Tennesseer. So we restored that. And we, uh, um, on that television show, my daughter and her then husband um, was on the show and Al fire, Fireball Everett, everything Bokari test drove and did the carburation on or whatever would catch fire. So I call him Fireball. Um, but um, it's a wonderful show, but Travel Channel determined they didn't want to do uh, automotive before it even came on air, but had great Nielsen's. But we played all nine episodes, and then it just went on the shelf. Mm. It was a great experience, and uh, learned a lot. And um, we we're going to try it again see see if people want it. And you know, we might have a lot of guests. And you know, I've got a face for a radio anyway. So
1: <laughs> yeah, you and me both. Yeah, uh, Dutch Mandel, who's the executive producer of this program, former publisher of Auto Week. Calls you a character? Is that what draws you to the automotive community? Because it's a band of characters.
2: It is a band of characters, and you know I think you know when you when you have imagination and you enjoy people, you enjoy cars and car people who are the best people in the world. um, You understand, and you have a good time with this industry and the people in it, and you enjoy having more good times. I just I mentioned earlier that I had Chip and and Kathleen here, Chip Foose here, and we went all over the city and um, just had a good time cracking jokes with each other. And um, it's just, um, there's a, you know, there's a cast of characters, Um, you know, and one thing in my, since my teeth got long and my hair got gray, (laughs) I realized Jason that it's not all about me. So just enjoying, um, Life is not all about me. Enjoying people, and looking at people in the eyes, and you know, teaching little boys and girls um, how to have a handshake, and um, you know what's important, and remembering their names, and calling them by their names. Um, you know, uh, folks like Dutch just say, you know, I guess that's uh, that's where uh, we ha- have the definition of a character. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Let's go through some characters, maybe a little rapid fire Q&A on these folks yeah. who you've met. Give me give me a few words, uh, maybe a few word answer to some of these names. How about customizer George Barris?
2: George Barris was a character. He, uh, he had so many things that he did that people don't even know about. The cars that he built. Um, he was, I, I used to get a, Uh, an envelope of stuff that said, Corky, you're a, you're a character and a hero. And you know, uh, there's Corky at every show. And, um, but he was just promoter extraordinaire. Yeah.
1: How about Carol Shelby?
2: Carol Shelby was a knucklehead, just like Corky Coker, (laughs) country boy, strawberry farmer. Um, you know, cussed a little bit too much. And I told him so iron sharpens iron. I said, Shelby, what in the hell you need to cuss so much for? Uh, but just an amazing engineer, a wonderful guy. Um, you know, I used to, I used to have dinner with him at that automotive news dinner at SEMA. He and Cleo uh, loved him. Miss him still. Yeah.
1: How about Boyd Coddington?
2: Fat buddy. Um, he uh he made automotive television. You know, he he would kind of he would he was a lot more loving and caring than what the producers of the television show made him out to be. He thought they they thought that they needed to have a have a conflict and that sort of thing. Uh, but you know, I don't, you know, I was just talking about this with Chip. There were a number of special education folks that you know, Boyd had working there, uh, folks with Down syndromes that worked at, um, at the speed shop there for many years. So, had a lot bigger heart than you'd think.
1: How about Bill France?
2: Bill France, inventive um, organizer, knew what he wanted and went after it. Mm. Uh, just um, built an industry beyond, uh, made a lot of people rich. My friend Jack Roush, He had a billion dollars worth of sponsorship with all of those race teams. And I asked him, how in the world did you get all those um, sponsors for all those teams? And he said, dang, Corky, that's really, really simple. All you do is figure out how to make them money. (laughs) That's what Bill France did.
1: How about a couple of events now? The Bonneville Salt Flats.
2: You know, we need to be getting our act together. SEMA CARES uh, and SEMA um, Political Action Committee. If you know a SEMA member or you're a SEMA member, you need to give to SEMA PAC because we're going to our legislators. We need to save the salt. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful experience at Bonneville. Um, And uh, we need to save the salt because it's going away and you know because of overreaching government if we don't do things like that we need the right to to ability uh, the ability to adapt our you know to fix our own cars they don't want us to do that internal combustion engines they don't want that you know if they think they can build a grid enough to put all america on electric cars <laughs> i'll tell you something different you ain't thinking boys so salt flats we need them. Wonderful heritage. If you've never been there, you got to do it.
1: You got to go. Yeah. I'm going to get into EVs in a second. Let's continue. The race of gentlemen.
2: Oh, the race of gentlemen. Those guys, um, those guys have, um, have a really unique experience that is built around passion. Uh, it's, it's built around speed. Kind of hard to do burnouts and drift your 1911 Mercer in the sand, but, um, you know, now, uh, it's bi-coastal, uh, on, in Wildwood, New Jersey and, uh, on the, on the West coast as well. Um, wonderful event. If you've not done it, you can need to do it.
1: Hmm. How about Daytona speed weeks?
2: Daytona speed week. Um, you know, I, my, I'm reminded of my son being in a, in one of the uh, suites uh around you know the Daytona Speedway at you know during Speed Week and that sort of thing and you know I, I remember him at 12 years old and he went into one of the suites there one time and you know he was getting all the you know candy or you know drinks and food that he wanted and he looked over at me and he said dad I just love VI Penis <laughs> what? <laughs> Speed Week, uh really wonderful experience. Um you know, um must-do deal. Have you been on the Mila uh, Milia? I have not. Um, you know, although I sold the business five years ago, uh I've really been busy um building up the museum. I've got a property development business with about 20 properties. We're doing a lot of stuff with that. And uh, I should have taken time. I'm doing a lot more touring. and uh, uh, Teresa and I did a wonderful tour through South Georgia and Northern Florida recently uh, in our 1911 Pierce. But I need to start doing some more of those that I didn't have time when I was flying 200,000 miles a year around the world, business suppliers and customers and that sort of stuff. But that's on my bucket list. I want to do the uh, Colorado Grand Um You know, I'd uh, done a dog sled trip and 200 miles above the Arctic circle at 40 degrees below zero. And if you don't, if you want to know what torque means, get behind about 12 sled dogs and say, um, mush and see if you don't feel that torque and get pulled off of that sled. Amazing.
1: It's different than being behind that mule, isn't it?
2: Absolutely.
1: So you mentioned EVs, so let's bring it up for a minute. How do you feel about the the movement to uh, electric vehicles? I think I know the answer, but go ahead and tell me what you think.
2: <laughs> I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's all good. Really. I do. I, you know, I'm, I'm for go along, get along really, but I just don't see how the grid can get there. And, you know, in California already they've, they've got brownouts and, you know, what do you do? You know, and and they're saying in 2036, there's no more uh, diesel trucks uh, and the military, they're going to, they're doing electric. Wait a minute, guys, we need a truce now for about three hours because our tanks that we're killing you with, uh, we need to charge them for a little bit. <laughs> All that stuff is, I mean, there's a place for Tesla's great technology. Uh, you know, I'm concerned about the, the graphite that we need for the batteries, uh, there's a company here in Chattanooga that that is making synthetic graphite. So we don't have to go to Russia and um, and China to get that stuff to make batteries. A lot of that technology is still in China. I don't like that. Um, I'm concerned about our industry. I'm for a uh, I'm for a nationalism, a, a short-term nationalism that we get incentives. Um, to uh, To build it here, make it here, buy it here, um, and instead of pounding into our college-age stuff, all this—sorry, I get political—a little woke stuff. Teach them about making stuff, and teach them about how to buy it here. And we can do things, and then we can do, be uh, what we need to be for us and for all these folks that you know want to come to America. And I'm for. I'm for immigration. I'm, you know, I, I am for immigration. We just need to do it legally. We need to do it responsibly. And um, we need to be able to pay for it. We need a balanced budget so we can pay for stuff. I am getting political, aren't I? Sorry, Jason.
1: Well, politics and high octane fuel, right? They're,
2: they're kind of the same thing. <laughs> you know, but one thing I'll say, you know, we need to have good atmosphere, good, clean air. And, um, you know, there's a lot of myths about that's all done by internal combustion engines. It's mostly stationary polluters. I really love a good, clean, sunshiny weekend that I can drive my 32 high boy down the roads. I want a good, clean atmosphere, but it's going to be a carbureted car and it's good, clean. You tune your carburetor, uh, it will run clean.
1: Final thing, Corky, and a variation on the age old question. You're sitting around bench racing with anyone, past or present. Who are they and why?
2: Well, I told you about my son. I just love to have my son there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I love to have my dad there, my yeah. granddad. Um, but uh, yeah, I,
1: maybe I Carol Shelby too.
2: Carol Shelby. Yeah, Carroll Shelby. I just spent some time with Chip. I just love his heart. He's one of the biggest, hardest guy, big, hardest-hearted guys in the collector car and hot rod industry. Um, I'd like to be with Juan Fangio mm-hmm. to understand what it was like to be the winningest Grand Prix driver of his day next to Michael Schumacher. Um, Henry Ford to understand what drove him. Um, and, uh, you know, one of my mentors is Barry McGuire and, you know, he raised a company that was, that worldwide and, um, he, he's my mentor because, um, one of my mentors because, um, you know, he takes his faith seriously and he taught me about how, you know, through your passion, we all have ministry. We all need to be, you know, selling something. And, uh, you know, what I'm doing nowadays, same thing he's doing is trying to move everybody every day closer to Jesus just by smiling, just by saying, you know, car guys are cool and even girls can be car guys in his world. Uh, But um, those are those guys um, laughing, you know, I tell you, one is a good friend to me and to Dutch is um, Keith Crane. Mm-hmm. He would be around it. He is a wonderful car man, wonderful giving guy. Um, and uh you know, love him. M- you know, miss seeing
1: him. Yeah, so, same here.
2: Uh, yep. Yeah. So uh I guess you know there's some people I forget, I'm sure. But uh that's that's probably my bench racing posse.
1: Your bench racing posse. I love it. So save the salt. And um, make sure to learn how to plow behind a mule.
2: Keep your eyes on the end of the furrow. Look through through the ears of the (laughs) mule, and you'll keep your eyes on your goal, and you'll plow straight.
1: Keep plowing straight, Corky. Thank you so much for being on Cars and Culture. You are Cars and Culture, Corky.
2: Well, Jason, thank you for having me on. Love it. Love you guys out there for driving your cars. Don't put them on trailers. Drive them. Keep them out of the garage. Take your family on a Sunday drive. Love you. Talk to you soon.
1: Thanks again to my guest today, legendary automotive aftermarket guru, Corky Coker. And to see my interview with Corky, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to Cars and Culture. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road.